Well, church, today is Resurrection Sunday, and um, we're going to be in the third message of a four-part Easter series that we're calling Look Again. Uh, over the past couple times we've met, we've talked about how if ever there's a time that we're tempted to uh, study or, or examine a, a particular story in the Bible for what it is, uh, apply it to our lives for what it is, but apart from the greater story of Scripture, it, it really is the Easter story. So for these four messages, we have Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, and then next Sunday we're going to wrap up our series. For these four messages... Um, our goal is to take a closer look at the important themes that we see that, that show up in the Easter story, and then uh, take a step back and see how uh, they connect with the greater story of God's Word. So last Sunday, if you were here, and if you weren't, uh, Palm Sunday, we kicked off our series by talking about uh, an extremely important theme that we see in the Easter story, and that's the theme of bread. This is a theme that not only shows up in the Easter story, but we see it all throughout God's word. You know, at any time we see the theme of bread, it's always a reminder to God's people that God will provide. Uh, we see story after story throughout Scripture how God has provided for the, the physical needs of his people. We know today, just there's countless stories in this room, how God has met your needs and provided for your needs. And we know that God's word teaches us that he promises to provide in the future. But the theme of bread goes way beyond that. It's more than just God meeting our physical needs. It's really about how God is the one, the only one who can meet the spiritual need that we all have. And that need is met in Jesus. The second major theme that we looked at was on Good Friday, just a few days ago. And we talked about the theme of storms. Now, while the word storm in and of itself isn't directly referenced in the Easter story, what this, what this theme represents is so central to God's word. It's so central to the Easter story. We talked about how when things are bad, when, when circumstances aren't right, when we find ourselves in the midst of one of life's storms, we, we all find ourselves wondering, is, there, is God really there? Or maybe you wonder, is there a God? Is God listening? Does, does God care? This is what the whole theme of storms represents. And we said that because of what Jesus went through on Good Friday, you and I can claim the promise, church, that we are not alone in the midst of the storm. God is present. He's with you no matter what it is that you go through. And we said a couple nights ago that Jesus went through the darkest moment, the most violent kind of storm, so that you and I never have to. This is good news. Amen? We can celebrate that this morning. But we're here today, church, because we know that the Easter story does not end on Friday. We know that this story isn't just about Jesus' death. It's also about what happened on Sunday. And that's why we celebrate. Today we're going to continue our series uh, once again by looking at a really important theme, not only in the Easter story, but a theme that we see all throughout God's Word. And that's the theme of blood. Now when you hear that, undoubtedly across the room, we're going to have different reactions to the word blood or different reactions to, to that kind of conversation. You know, for some of us, just the idea of blood or the idea of having a conversation about blood is enough to make you queasy, right? Just a show of hands. If that's you this morning, if, if just the, the, the topic of blood is enough to make you a little bit queasy, just raise it high this morning. All right, there's a couple. I know there's more out there. Well, if that's you, I'm sorry. You're just going to strap yourself in and we're going to work through it together. 
But for, for, so if you don't fall in that category, maybe you fall on the, the other end of the pendulum. You know, for others, you could watch a, a thrilling, blood and gore, scary movie every night of the week, and you wouldn't lose a minute of sleep because of it. If that's you, just raise it high this morning. All right, a few more, a few more. I'm, I'm probably with you there. My wife, not so much. She's at the other end of the pendulum. So, but regardless of where you fall, you know, the reality is that blood is not a constant thing in our day-to-day lives. I mean, sure, we see it in movies, and we see it in a lot of the video games that are, that are out these days, and, and we get the occasional nosebleed or the occasional paper cut, but unless you're a doctor, a nurse, or you work in some type of field that deals with blood on a day-to-day basis, it's just not very common in our day-to-day lives. And it's one of those words that when it's mentioned, it's, it's enough to kind of set you back a little bit, like, what are we talking about? In fact, usually the most comfortable that we are talking about the word or discussing the topic of blood is what we hear when we come to church. Think, think about it this way. I mean, if you've, if you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church for any amount of time whatsoever, you'll be a little bit familiar with some of the old hymns that we sing that mention blood, like washed in the blood. There's power in the blood. And then one of my favorites is, is nothing but the blood. So, so we're at least a little bit familiar with the topic. Even if we're uncomfortable... With the word, we understand. I think there's a, there's a foundation this morning in understanding that there's something significant about blood in the songs that we sing and what we read about in God's word. And, and more specifically, Jesus' blood. Now, if you, if you look to the back of your Bibles, you don't have to do that at this time, but just in, in your own time, if you look to the back of your Bibles at the concordance, you'll actually see at least 40 to 50 references that are made to blood, and you can go look those up in Scripture. But what's crazy is this doesn't even really do it justice. This isn't a good representation at all for how many times this theme shows up in Scripture. And even though we understand that there's a significant meaning attached to the use of the word blood, the importance of it seems to be largely unknown or even outdated. Again, with our, in our churches today, um, the, the trend is to be trendy, and, and blood is not that really trendy of a word, right? We don't talk about it that much. So in order for us to get a better understanding of this in, incredibly important theme, we need to start by looking backwards a little bit to the way things were. And we have to remember as we do so that for most of the cultures throughout human history, um, sacrifice and the result, blood, uh, were common and expected. So within the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we we see the very first reference uh, to sacrifice and blood. And this reference is found in one of the most familiar stories that we have in the Bible, but it's one that I think we completely look over when it comes to this topic. So most of us here today, we've probably heard of the story of Adam and Eve. You know, maybe you were raised in Sunday school, or um, you know, maybe you've been in and out of church, or maybe this is your first time here. You've probably heard about Adam and Eve. God created the world, including Adam and Eve, and together they lived in the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, there was, there was just one rule, right? just one rule. Now, I don't care how slow of a learner you are, one rule is pretty easy to follow. Now, wives, don't look at your husbands this morning, all right? <laughs> one rule is pretty easy to follow. In fact, we learn about this rule in Genesis chapter 2. So you can follow along with me on the screen today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Edom to work it and to take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. They had this, this total freedom. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, and I underline this in, in, in my Bible, it says, you will certainly die. It's not very encouraging. <laughs> you, you jump to the New Testament, though, and you're given at least a, a little bit of a picture of why Adam and Eve made the, the choice that they ultimately made to, to rebel and, and disobey. We see in John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. And John goes on to say, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. You know, instead of trusting God as, as perfect provider, which he is, Adam and Eve believed the lie that they lacked in certain areas of their life. They gave in to, to what we call the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is something we've talked about in a previous message. And this is what the body wants to feel, what the eyes want to see, and what the soul wants to experience. And so often, we have in our own minds that we know what's best. And here's God laying out the ground rules saying, listen, your life is going to thrive. You're going to have joy. You're, you're going to enjoy the things I've created for you to enjoy if you follow the plan that I've laid out. You see, up until the moment that they decided to rebel and pursue something that they believed would satisfy more than God, we read about how both Adam and Eve had been naked in, in the garden. They didn't even realize it. Scripture says they were, they were completely unashamed. But once they ate the fruit, they learned this newfound shame. They learned embarrassment. They, they gained a certain awareness that they hadn't had before and this isn't a good kind of gain. So what did they do? What did they how did they respond to this newfound shame in their life? Well, Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 spells it out for us pretty clearly. It says, "Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day." And here's what they did. It says they they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So embarrassed and afraid, they tried to cover themselves up with anything they could find. I, I like to believe that they just looked around and ran to the first thing they saw, and it just happened to be a tree. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think this would have covered very well. All right, you just, I would ask you to form a mental picture, but that's probably not the right thing to do today. This just wouldn't have been a, a very effective form of of clothing. I mean, can you imagine if God would have just let them walk around and left them to it and let them walk around in these types of clothes? I mean, it would have completely changed the fashion industry forever. All right. Easter Sunday. Again, don't picture this, but we would have probably all been wearing something completely different today. But in his goodness and in his grace, God didn't leave them that way. Thankfully, God stepped in and he did something for them that is completely unexpected. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, let's read this. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So if you're taking notes today, the first thing that I want to talk about today is this, that God made the first sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. 
God made the first sacrifice. Even in their rebellion and in, in their sin, God made the first move to provide for their needs. He made clothing for them from the skins of animals. And while the word sacrifice and the word blood isn't used, it's pretty clear that he had to get the skins from somewhere, right? So when you begin to read between the lines, we, we understand that God made the first sacrifice of, of an animal in order to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. He did this in order to protect them from the shame and the embarrassment that they would now feel because of the choices they had made. And friends, this really is the first picture of sacrifice and blood that we see in all of Scripture. And if we look closely at what happens here, we see two really important things. The first one is this. We see the obvious appearance of sin. Adam messed up. They, they disobeyed. They chose to trust themselves and their, and their own judgment over what Scripture calls God's wisdom and God's instruction. And we know it cost them. Their innocence and the relationship with God, as it had been, was now forever changed because of their choice. This is what's so interesting to me, though. God, God makes a promise to them, and he says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And we know, as you, as you trace the story of, of Scripture, that physical death is a result of sin. That spiritual death is a result of sin. But it almost seems like God's just going to wipe them off the face of the earth if they don't listen. But again, in His grace, instead of wiping them out completely, God does something once again so unexpected. God redefined the relationship. He redefined the relationship. And this wasn't because He had a poor memory about what He had told them before, but because He had an extensive love for His people. He spared their lives, and then he took it a step further. And that's, that's the second thing we see in this point, is that God demonstrates his great grace. Yes, God made them leave the garden. That was just a consequence for their choices. We, we understand that, right? We, we make choices, whether positive or negative, and we, we have to live with the consequences, and so did they. But they were no longer naked. God sacrificed an animal out of love for the very ones who let him down. And really, the first time that we see blood alluded to, we also see God's love and provision coming through the blood that was shed. Church, this is amazing. And this sets up the rest of the story of God's word. We've talked about how it really is one story that is interwoven to tell the story of Jesus and why he would come why he would sacrifice his own life and then ultimately defeating sin, Satan, and death when he arose from the grave. This is amazing. From Genesis onward, we read about blood and its relationship between God and his people. And honestly, if you've never read anything in, in, in Scripture, I probably would, would encourage you to look maybe like in the book of John first or something. Don't, don't necessarily start in like Leviticus or something like that. It's probably not the best place to start. But from Genesis on, we see this relationship, and it's kind of strange, especially when you don't live in a time like that. After, for example, after the Hebrew people escaped Egypt, and while they wandered in the desert, we read about how these laws were created as God gave specific examples for when his people were to make a sacrifice so that sin could be covered. And while God's people would have been familiar with this idea of spilling blood and, and as sacrifice to cover sin, the cultures surrounding them, all of them, would have had a completely different view 
A completely different understanding of the idea of sacrifice and why it was important. And the other cultures, their view began to greatly affect God's people. So other cultures who worshipped false gods, they would shed the blood of animals and sadly, even humans at times, in an effort to appease and to pacify an angry false god or gods. And in their minds, this would have been done to win favor or as a plea for, for mercy. You know, and th- this is one of those things. We take a step back, and I think this kind of thinking, not, not with maybe an animal sacrifice, but just your view of God, this type of thinking infiltrates the church sometimes. That we think that how uh, we do certain things, we live a certain way so that we can please and pacify maybe an angry God. When you read the stories of the Old Testament, you come to the conclusion that God knew the temptation for his people would be to fall into the same kind of practices as these, as these pagan cultures. But the God of Israel, the God of the Bible is different. And that leads us to our second point today, and that is this, that God saw blood as a way to restore a relationship. And, and here it is. Here's the kicker. That already existed. God saw blood as a way to restore a relationship that already existed. Even though the relationship with God was changed because of Adam and Eve's choice to sin, the relationship with God was was initiated, it was blessed, and it was treasured since the time of creation. I mean, after all, in the garden, God was the one sacrificing, not Adam and Eve. What God wanted so badly for his people to understand was that sacrifice and blood was never going to win God's favor. Blood was always the avenue for restoration. Where something that already existed, though broken, could be made whole. And it was through blood that things were made right, made whole, and and redeemed. It didn't create something that, that wasn't already there. It just made right the broken relationship. Blood was cleansing, not offered in fear, but offered in humility. That what had been lost, what had been broken, what had been severed because of sin and disobedience could once again be made right. Things get kind of messy with God's people in the Old Testament as you trace their story. Even God's own people begin to believe and practice things that weren't right. And after generations of, of a promise that a Messiah would come and deliver God's people, save God's people, Jesus shows up on the scene. And the things that God people th- thought they understood were turned completely upside down. And that's what Jesus did, really, everywhere he went. He had kind of an upside-down way of doing things, upside-down with how the rest of the world operated. And while they thought the sacrifice was the point, Jesus brought new understanding to how the heart behind the sacrifice is more important than the sacrifice itself. The heart behind the sacrifice is more important than the sacrifice itself. I mean, there's story after story, but if you, if you look in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus calls one of his very first disciples, it was a tax collector Named Matthew. Matthew, you know, we, we hear tax collector and, we, and we, we hear Matthew and we think like our local guy at H&R Block, right? 
That's what we think about when we think about tax collectors. But in his day, that's not the case. Tax collectors were like the worst of the worst. And I've shared this before, but this would be like someone's high school student selling drugs to your middle school student behind the local convenience store. Matthew would have been the high school student. (laughs) That's how people viewed tax collectors in that time. So Jesus, he calls Matthew... And Jesus was actually rebuked and called out by the people who thought they were righteous, thought they were, they were these religious leaders. He was called out for his, his bad choice in friends. And this is how the scene unfolds. I love this. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13, it says, As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Now we're all going to think about a high school student selling drugs to a middle school student, right? <laughs> so he saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. He told him. Matthew got up and he followed him. In, in, his, in his sin, in, in, in his filthiness, when he was at his absolute worst, Jesus called him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. These are those religious leaders. And they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. This is some of those things that maybe have infiltrated the church some. It's like, why do you spend time with people like this? Why do you surround yourself with people like this? We shouldn't do that. Well, Jesus did that. Those are the kind of people that he came to save. In fact, this is what we read. It says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, what's important is the motive or the heart behind whatever it is that we do. Why would Jesus say this at this time? You know, why, when when confronted with these religious leaders for, for something that he's doing, I don't know about you, but I would be super defensive, right? You know, I, I would I'd probably puff up a little bit and, and try to explain why it is that I'm hanging out with someone like this. Try to justify it. So why would Jesus say, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? I believe it's because from the time of God's people in Genesis, somewhere along the way, they had lost sight of the God who had actually made the very first sacrifice for them all the way back in the garden. They started to value, hear hear this church, they started to value ritual over relationship. They valued sacrifice over the God who used sacrifice as evidence of his great mercy and grace. If you jump forward just a few chapters in Matthew, when Jesus offered wine at the Last Supper, just a day or two before his crucifixion, we read these words. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 through 28, it says, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, when, when the disciples and, and Jesus' friends and family gathered at the, cross, at the cross and they saw the blood of Jesus spilled, all of a sudden the meaning of blood was made clear. For thousands of years they had spilled the blood of animals in order to restore a broken relationship with God because of sin. But in an incredible twist, here's what God says. Not anymore. This time, 
I'll spill my own blood. This time, I will be the sacrifice. The need for blood was never about anger or, or my temper or, or a change of heart. This was always about fixing a relationship that already existed, not creating a new one. God, God is saying it wasn't about getting me to love you because here this church, I have always loved you. It wasn't about getting me to care because I've always cared. Blood was never and will never be spilled to create love, but blood will be used to restore relationship. And God says, this time with my son is the last time. No more doing what you did for generations. What's accomplished in Jesus will finish it. His blood is enough. See, God's goal has always been the relationship at all costs. And the cross is evidence to us today, church, of what it costs. If you're taking notes, the fourth point, the final point we're going to talk about today is this, that the cross is evidence of God's love at all costs. This is the same God who made a sacrifice in order to clothe Adam and Eve, even after they disobeyed him and broke the original relationship. This is the same God who was constantly working to to help his people understand why blood was so necessary, Not, not to keep him happy or to pacify an angry God, but to keep his people as his own and to preserve what he had already initiated from the time of creation. And this was the same God who sacrificed his son on a cross to do just that. You see, church, blood, when understood in this context, is about more than just a system or a mindless ritual that was the norm in the Old Testament. It's about a love so big and so grand, so expansive, that it gives itself up to include anybody and everybody. This is a personal story. This this is your story. So why does blood matter? Why why does it show up in the, the old hymns that we sing? Why does it show up in the stories that we read in God's word? Why does it cause us to pause and think about it when we hear it mentioned? I believe that it's because like the old hymns tell us, like God's word tells us, this blood means that the God of the universe loves you at all costs. He was fit to make the greatest sacrifice ever made so that we could have a fully restored relationship with God by his grace and through having a personal and sincere faith in Jesus. Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 1 through 6 says this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled the stone and sat on it. His appearance, what what they saw was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and they became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, 
just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay.